0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Madeleine Albright is all too familiar with fascism. It forced her and her family out of their native Czechoslovakia during World War II. Eventually, they settled in Colorado, where she spent her teen years. Albright's father was the first dean of international studies at the University of Denver. Albright, of course, would go on to serve as President Bill Clinton's secretary of state. Today, she warns that fascism is again gaining a foothold around the world. And while she stops short of labeling President Trump that way, she describes him as the first anti-democratic president in modern U.S. history. Madeleine Albright's new book is Fascism, A Warning. And Madam Secretary, welcome back to the program.
1: Great to be in Colorado. Thank you.
0: First, to some developing news. President Trump confirmed this morning that CIA Director Mike Pompeo visited North Korea to lay the groundwork for a meeting between Trump and uh, Supreme Leader Kim Jong Un. Uh, historically, presidents, including Bill Clinton, have refused to meet with North Korean leaders unless they agreed to halt their nuclear program. Is now the right time for President Trump to meet with Kim?
1: I believe in diplomatic exchanges and talk and having these kinds of meetings. What I had been saying previously, I had hoped that it would be well prepared. And so I think this trip by Director Pompeo um, is appropriate if, in fact, there were serious discussions about preparations for what could be a most important meeting.
0: The preparations, in other words, to discuss what can be discussed, what the ground rules are, and perhaps what the negotiation would be.
1: Right. And and what the meaning of certain words are. So denuclearization. I think that we see something uh, and uh, presumably Kim Jong-un has different views about it. And those are the issues that need to be discussed. What are the parameters? What are the various subjects that will come up? So um, I hope that uh, they understand the importance of the preparation. So uh, I think it's important that he went.
0: You write that at one of your more recent birthday parties, President Clinton expressed regret that he didn't visit North Korea uh, after your visit there, I'll say in 2000.
1: Well, let me give you the context. What happened was we had been dealing with issues of North Korea for some time, and President Clinton had asked... Former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry to do a complete review of our North Korea policy, which he did, and then uh, Mr. Secretary Kerry went. Uh, Perry, I'm sorry, Secretary Perry went to um, Pyongyang, began talking about things, and then what happened was the number two guy, Vice Marshal Cho, came to the United States, and we went to the Oval Office, and he gives a folder to President Clinton and says, and in there is an invitation for him to come. And he said, well, maybe at some point I'd go, but this has to be prepared, and so I'm sending the Secretary of State. So that's what happened, and it was towards the end of the term, late summer um, 2000. And uh, President Clinton was trying to decide whether he would follow up on the very uh, important talks that we'd had at Camp David about the Middle East peace or go to North Korea. One or the other. One or the other. Given the limited time. Right. And so that's why he decided the Middle East. And then, of course, that didn't happen either. So.
0: You are critical of President Trump, for sure, in this book. We'll, We'll talk more about that in a bit. But you write, I, for one, do not foreclose the possibility that the president's brash disregard for diplomatic convention might, in some cases, be exactly what's needed to awaken people to new possibilities. Is that what's going on here, do you think?
1: Well, I do think that there are those that would like to cut through a lot of the verbiage and maybe be brash. The problem is that there are too many brash times. And I think the unpredictability of the brashness is something that one has to be careful of because it does need to be followed up by detail. So that's the issue.
0: Detail. Your book, as we mentioned, is called Fascism, A Warning. Why this warning and why now?
1: Well, let me just say, I think that um, there are various elements to fascism, and I think that we are not paying enough attention. And the book is basically historical in terms of looking at Mussolini and Hitler, but then also the kinds of things that are going on in Europe uh, with Turkey, with um, Poland, Hungary. Uh, And then also what has happened in Venezuela as examples. And so I look at the steps that have existed in the past and then seeing whether any of that is existing right now in the U.S.
0: That is the steps towards a fascist regime. And indeed, you dig into modern figures like Duterte and Erdogan. Uh, And why now? Why look at those steps towards fascism at this point in history?
1: Because I am concerned about some of the trends and uh, signs that are going on here. For instance, the fact that there is an identification with only one group and a, a really way of derogating the rights of those that are not part of it a lack of respect for democratic institutions, uh, the press uh, for one, the judiciary for another, and kind of a sense that there's no discussion with people that you disagree with, that there is a way uh, of really exacerbating the differences that exist in any society. And that's what I'm troubled by.
0: What do you mean by identification with one group? Is that a statement of partisanship?
1: No. I think it's more kind of um, whether it's a, a a group of people that are highly nationalistic, kind of tribal approach, not understanding the importance of diversity of populations, especially the United States, and kind of exacerbating that sense that, you know, America first and that we don't care about other places, nor do we care about people in the United States um, that are of mixed backgrounds.
0: You have a lot of trouble with the notion of America first. You write extensively about that in the book. Why do you think that's an improper lens to look at the world through, to say jobs here should come first, that citizens here should come first?
1: Well, I have uh, given my history and what it was like when that term first came up in the 30s and kept America out of doing um, a really responsible job in dealing with what was happening in Europe. That's one part. But the other is...
0: The, the U.S.'s lack of involvement... Lack of involvement. ...to a certain point in World War II.
1: Exact. Well, and leading up to it, for instance, very specifically, what was happening to the country where I was born, Czechoslovakia, and the Munich Agreement, where the U.S. wasn't present. But now, obviously, we do have to worry about what is going on in the U.S. and in terms of People being left out, or the infrastructure uh, really falling apart in a number of ways. But I think America's health and vitality depends on how what the rest of the world looks like. Uh, Are they? uh, Are we somehow supporting places, or lack of any interest in places that become a petri dish for people that hate us? And so America's strength, and it's the job of every president to protect our people, our territory, and our way of life. But that, for me, means being involved in what is going on abroad and worrying also about not just America alone or America as a victim.
0: I think to the recent strikes against Syria for the suspected use of chemical weapons there, and that was uh, done with the United States, the United Kingdom, and France. Isn't that a testament to some international cooperation from this administration? even as they say, America first.
1: Well, I have to say it's one of the first indications. I, I'm i sorry that it had to happen over such a horrible thing as this chemical attack, but I do think it is a time that there was a recognition by this administration that there needed to be some coalition. And so uh, I hope that it isn't a one-off in that particular way. There's an understanding that multilateralism is not a bad thing. It's partnership with others.
0: And yet the United States has been so deeply involved and for so long in some places, of course, Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think many would say that hasn't really paid dividends.
1: Well, I I do think that's very much the issue, and uh, President Obama was actually elected to get us out of those places because there were real questions about what we were doing in Iraq, what was the purpose of that. And then something that I think is very troublesome is that President Karzai, former president of Afghanistan, basically blamed us for what happened there instead of thanking us for helping him.
0: You acknowledge that this warning you send in the book fascism uh, is written during the Trump era, but you don't call him a fascist. You use that term anti-democratic, as I said. I want to understand a little bit more about what it means to you. So you start with Mussolini and Hitler, as you say, and and you lay out some of those factors, those steps that indeed lead to fascism. And you find that similar conditions exist now. One of them is changing technology. You acknowledge that can be a good thing. But you see danger there as well. Why?
1: Well, first of all, let me say, I would have written this book no matter who had gotten elected. Because what I began to see was the fact that there were a lot of have-nots in this country as a result of technology, people who had lost their jobs and they couldn't understand why, nor was our educational system set up in a way to teach them new skills. And so that division in society was beginning then, and people wondering why the 1% had so much when a lot of people were out of work. And so I was looking at what happens when there are divisions in society, and then what happens uh, if There is a leader who kind of identifies himself with that group and then disrespects and uh, really exacerbates the differences with the others. So some of the things that I was nervous about really did come about with this election.
0: And you see uh, correlations, similarities, patterns to that period before World War II.
1: I do. Mm -hmm. Because some of it is that America first, blaming foreigners for things. Why would you want a bunch of immigrants who are taking the jobs? And really a disrespect for the truth.
0: And yet, when you look at, say, the last 25 years, Democrats have held the presidency for 16 To what extent are they to blame for the economic picture that you're talking about?
1: Well, I do think that um, there was a lack of attention being paid. On the other hand, um, during the Obama administration, the economic uh, situation had changed for a lot of people, but I don't think that there was enough attention paid to what you said initially, the technological advances and the displacement that took place.
0: And the idea that people's jobs are being replaced by robots, by, by automation. Another point you raise is changing communication. So in the Mussolini era, that meant the advent of radio. In this era, it's the Internet, social media. You call for social media to be regulated. Quote, at a minimum, Internet users require tools that will enable them to identify bot-generated and other forms of faux news services. You say that regulation to ensure that the source of online political messaging is as transparent as the sponsorship of campaign commercials that appear on radio and television.
1: I think we all thought that the social media was an incredible new toy and a great gift. And a lot of it is, but it is also has its downside. And I think that part of it is how it's being used by those who disrespect the freedom of the press and also by the Russians, for instance. We are dealing with um, a former KGB officer in President Putin, and he has weaponized information. And so we have to figure out how to deal with it. I do think some form of regulation is useful, but I think we have to see it for the good parts and the negative parts.
0: And yet, as you identify fascist leaders in this book, you talk over and over uh, about how they suppressed the media. Is that the risk here, though, if you regulate social media?
1: Well, I'm not saying suppress it. I do think that even those that, um, many of us, I believe, obviously, in a free press and also in the capability of information of exchange. um, But I really do think that we have an issue about how it is being misused. And so not a lot of regulation, but I think something that understands what the problems are.
0: You write about several current world leaders, chief among them Vladimir Putin, Uh, whom you met when you were Secretary of State, as he was a rising leader in Russia. Uh, Of course, there are investigations going on of President Trump's ties to Russia. There's evidence of Russian interference in the last election. How would you deal with Putin and Russia at this point?
1: Let me say that I think that I'm very concerned about what Putin himself is doing. Uh, And I have him in this book also. Um, Fascists don't just have to be from the right. Uh, They also are from the left, and some of the kinds of things that are going on in Russia are similar in terms of the steps that are taking place. I do think his desire at the moment is not only to make Russia more important and larger and in a bunch of different places that they want to have control, but also to undermine democracy and to use democracy and its uh, institutions to that purpose, such as the media and the things that they're doing in Central and Eastern Europe, and the things that they were doing, I believe, during our election that need to be exposed.
0: You're talking about some of the attacks on former Soviet satellites, for instance. Uh, we've talked a bit about uh, the Russian interference in the election. Do you remember the first time you met Putin, what well, it was like?
1: the first time I met him was a little bit different. It was during a meeting in Asia, the Apex summit, in New Zealand, and he was still kind of the caretaker president, and he seemed kind of very small and uh, pale, um, and he was trying to ingratiate himself with everybody, especially with President Clinton. And then when I went to Russia later in order to prepare for the summit, and then the summit itself in the summer of 2000, and by then it was very clear that he was feeling the power of being the president. He was very smart. He spoke without notes and took notes and really challenged various things. So I think he is a smart person who knows how to play a weak hand very well.
0: We have talked about leaders. I want to talk about the electorate. I want to talk about the citizens of democracies and their responsibility, because you, you call them out to some extent. I mean, aside from a lack of trust in institutions, there also seems to be a lack of simple information going on. Uh, A recent survey about the Holocaust found that 40% of Americans and two-thirds of millennials don't know what Auschwitz was. About a third of Americans believe that two million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. It's six. Your father, as we mentioned, was a leading academic in the field of foreign relations. You teach now at Georgetown. Uh, if you are afraid of the rise, uh, the rise again of fascism, to what extent is that on the, the the backs of voters in various countries?
1: I think you bring up a very important point because I have feel strongly that there is a responsibility of voters or uh, citizens to know what they should be doing and thinking. And so, you know, that saying, I say something... Uh, see something, say something. I've added to that do something. And among the do's are that I think people need to understand better what is going on, be actively involved in questioning their legislators and becoming legislators themselves. But you have raised one of the crucial issues is where do people get their information? And we talked about this earlier in terms of do you get, if people only listen to what they already think they know, and live in echo chambers, and don't seek to have discussions with people that they differ with, you lose the whole purpose of democracy.
0: I wonder if you make conversations like that harder, though, when you refer to President Trump as the first anti-democratic president in history. How how do you support that claim? And, And how do you bring a claim like that up with someone who voted for Trump and expect the conversation to continue.
1: Well, I think the hard part is how not to be condescending to those people and to really listen to them. But I do think that there needs to be an understanding of what democracy is about. And what do you
0: mean when you say he's the first anti-democratic president in U.S. history?
1: Well, his kind of instincts are that he does not understand the value of the institutions, specifically the press, by calling everything that he disagrees with fake news and saying enemy is of the people, that he does not respect the democratic institutions, i.e. the judiciary uh, specifically, that he also has this tendency to uh, uh, really disrespect anybody that he disagrees with and not explain anything, and mostly that he is using... Um, The institutions to his own purpose and I think that he is not democratic and he thinks he's above the law And that's the part that I think is essential to look at especially given the kinds of things that are going on But I have not called him a fascist. I think there are however steps that make me very nervous. Have you met him? No, I have not. Do you want to No. Um, No, I do not No. Uh, because I I think that he doesn't listen, and I do think that part of what I'm talking about is the importance of listening to those with whom you disagree, and I don't see anything in the way that he handles people um, that would um, really indicate that he wants to listen, but I do think that the people who voted for him uh, need to be respected. I think I would like to have more discussions with them.
0: I want to talk just a bit about uh, his nominee for Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, uh, who apparently did some of the groundwork for this North Korea summit. What advice would you have for him stepping into a job that had been held by Rex Tillerson and the sometimes volatile relationship that the cabinet can have with the president?
1: Well, well, I think that um, he—I've already—I've listened to his testimony, and I have met him. What uh, I think is encouraging is that he understands the importance of the State Department uh, and wants to, to put it literally, resurrect it, because Tillerson was not—kept reorganizing things, and most people—large numbers of people left, and it's kind of a shadow of what you need. If you're going to do diplomacy, you need diplomats. I think that from what I have read, he has a good relationship with the president. And the question is whether he will take... Uh, advantage of that relationship to state uh, times that he might disagree with the president, because I think it is important that the president hears a variety of views. And that's what I'm worried about now, because John Bolton, who's the national security advisor, is brand new. Some of his views are quite scary, I think, in terms of the way that he has spoken about how America should behave. And I think the question is to what extent Pompeo Uh, would really have some kind of influence on the president.
0: Are you making an allusion there to enhanced interrogation, for instance?
1: Well, that's one of the aspects, you know, and not talking enough about uh, democratic values and what this country stands for.
0: Uh, You were a big supporter of Hillary Clinton. uh, But some of the issues we've talked about, the division of America economically, the split between urban and rural voters... Uh, Many people have said Clinton was just out of touch there, that she missed the importance of those issues. One, do you agree? And two, do you think uh, the Democratic Party has realized uh, that and uh, might change course?
1: Well, I do think that um, there were issues that the Democrats, we lost uh, touch with our base in many ways. Labor was our base. And it wasn't Her, But a a whole host of Democrats. And now I think the Democratic Party is fairly divided, frankly. Um, And I what I'm arguing for generally, I'm a centrist. And I do think that what we should be doing is trying to find common ground in the party, but also I believe in bipartisanship and trying to sort out ways where we don't divide people so much um, as much as trying to find common ground. Roosevelt, for instance, during the Depression, Franklin Roosevelt was attacked from the left and the right and was able to find common ground and policies that helped those that needed help.
0: Is centrism dead?
1: I hope not. Because I do think that uh, you can't get much done if you are operating from far left or far right. And that agreement, compromise is not a four-letter word. It is something that is important in order to make a democracy work.
0: There is talk of a blue wave in this cycle, Democrats perhaps taking back Congress. But there's a presidential election in two years, and the names we hear as candidates are people like Joe Biden. I think it's fair to say that he represents maybe the old guard of democratic politics. Do do the Democrats have a bench?
1: There's a very large bench, frankly, and it's very interesting because it does have uh, people like Joe Biden and then also a lot of new younger members of Congress that are very active and smart. And some of them are veterans and understand what America should or can't do abroad. And I'm very pleased. I think we have a very large bench.
0: And how do you think they might restore some bipartisanship in Washington? Well, I think the how, you know, is is the critical question here.
1: Well, I do think the only way to do it is to actually have respect for those that you disagree with and listen to them. That is not easy. And one of the things that I'm calling for is that there be discussions between uh, among those that disagree and have a capability of, of responding to them instead of yelling at them or threatening violence. Uh, and so that's what worries me is that we are not respectful enough of other people's views.
0: Former First Lady Barbara Bush. Died yesterday at the age of 92. Uh, the wife of the president who preceded President Clinton and the mother of the president who succeeded him. Uh, Bill Clinton, in particular, uh, became close to both Bushes after they left office. Uh, you knew Mrs. Bush, I'm sure. Will you tell us just a bit about her?
1: I did. And you know, I, I was kid about this, but my first trip, foreign trip as Secretary of State was to Texas. Um, and I met the Bushes at that point, And we I went to their house. And they couldn't have been nicer. But we also talked about things like the Chemical Weapons Convention and a comprehensive test ban. And President Bush was very receptive. And Mrs. Bush was one of the most charming and fun people to talk to. And she really was very direct. And whenever I saw them, both of them. They couldn't have been kinder. And uh, I think they did. Um, they both did a great job. And uh, I am offering my condolences to President Bush and to President W. Bush, because I think that Mrs. Bush was an incredible influence and one of the really remarkable Americans.
0: Madam Secretary, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Madeleine Albright. Who spent some of her formative years in Denver, served as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and then as Secretary of State under President Bill Clinton. She has just written, Fascism, a warning. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. Survivors of the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, are expected to be in Colorado tomorrow to take part in what's being called Vote for Our Lives. The event will take place near Columbine High School, and Colorado students are organizing this. It coincides this week with the 19th anniversary of the Columbine shootings. Journalist Dave Cullen wrote about Columbine, and this year he's been in Florida writing for Vanity Fair about the shootings at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. We're going to reflect on these two attacks, separated by 19 years, and yet still very much connected. And Dave, welcome back to the program. Hi, thanks for having me again. It's good to be back in Colorado, actually. Indeed, you're here ahead of this vote for our lives. There have already been walkouts and marches. What's the goal for students with this latest event?
2: Well... The movement is really hitting a crucial phase right now because this is after the media has moved on to other things, and we've got you know the daily White House stuff, so they're sort of competing for the news cycle and You know, we've learned after all these shootings, there is really a window of of interest and change and wanting to do something. Um, And that fades rather quickly. You know, we saw after Newtown, actually, they sort of missed that window uh, Mm. for for gun control. And here they acted, obviously, the first day, literally, and had the pressure on. But now the, the, the... the challenge is to keep the momentum going and through the midterms. I mean, the midterm elections are the key goal uh, for this group and having an impact. And they really need to show an impact or everyone will say, OK, didn't happen again.
0: There was a strong push for gun control after Columbine, I want to say. And uh, tomorrow we'll actually air a conversation between two generations of gun activists. Oh, Rachel really? Hill is a current student at Columbine and Ben Gelt is a graduate of East High who organized for universal background checks after the Columbine shooting in 1999. How would you compare the response to Columbine back on April 20th, 99, to Parkland this past February?
2: Completely different, night and day. You know, I've been covering these things for 19 years, unfortunately, and there's never been anything like this one. So Columbine was like a left hook out of nowhere. We'd never experienced anything like this. And the people, um, I mean, really were in shock. You know, the morning after Columbine, they were completely different from the day before the kids. Uh, they had that blank affect, literally uh, going straight into the numb phase of PTSD. And so they weren't ready. They, day one or day two, they couldn't become activists. They were, they were dealing with something like being attacked from
0: Mars. Right. The, the country had felt changed it, in com- many ways, completely. too. Completely.
2: But this time, these are kids who grew up, this is the Columbine generation, who grew up, who were born after Columbine, who've only known lockdowns. When they were in kindergarten, they were always already doing lockdowns. So this is part of their life, lives, and they're angry about it. They've been growing anger their whole life. So they were ready day one, and they erupted.
0: That is to say, they, they hit the ground running, and they did so with social media. That's just something that didn't exist, uh, as it does now, in 1999.
2: It did, and and they were able to sort of, like, discover, because most of them went into their own homes, but then they got on Facebook. So in addition to calling and texting each other, they were seeing this, this, this swirling, this massive movement amongst themselves. And so they all sort of did it collectively, which, you know, 19 years ago couldn't have happened. You might have like phone trees or something calling each other. People might, but they would have never been sort of aware that everybody else was in the same place and going. And so they sort of motivated each other en masse. That literally that first night.
0: You were down in Florida and you, you saw the operation really mm-hmm. uh, that these young people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School created to get the word out, to get their messages out. Just briefly paint a picture of that for us
2: sure, um, you know, they feel like they already have built their platform, and uh, you know, I read a story for Vanity Fair about the memes men, um, uh,
0: the memes men,
2: yes, yes, this is this is two of these guys who, um, You know, they're all TV and performers and drama kids and TV. So they're they're writing scripts and they brainstorm ideas between them. Emma has an idea or Alfonso has an idea. And then, you know, somebody goes, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. They go home and actually literally write the script. Then they come in, they film it. Um, So they responded to like Dana Lash, one of her NPR, sort of her famous tweets, the hourglass um, little video they did. Like the next day they had a response up. So they're engaging in social media, creating interesting creative content Um, and just you know like that
0: you're talking about the NRA spokesperson I think yes yes exactly yes Uh, well you you said that the question is whether this movement will continue whether it will fizzle out Um, what, what do you think what, what signs might you point to that it's headed in one direction or the other?
2: I think this is the first time where we really have a movement. You know, the, the polls have shown that um, this time people really believe something will change and are more open to something change than in the past. All
0: right. It's also true that not all young people embrace this message of gun control. And we've heard from them on the program as well. Dave, thanks for being with us.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Dave Cullen has been covering the Parkland shootings for Vanity Fair, and he's in Colorado to report on an event tomorrow evening that's organized by students. It's called Vote for Our Lives, and some survivors of the Florida attack are expected to attend. This week marks 19 years since the Columbine shootings, and with that in mind, let's listen back to a conversation Cullen and I had about his 2009 book, Columbine. He covered that attack when it happened and spent 10 years writing his account, which attempts to dissect what drove the killers. And one thing I learned reading it is that Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold had planned to kill many more people than they did.
2: Their idea was to top Oklahoma City and be the biggest terrorist attack in the U.S., which it would have been. There were the two big bombs they planted in the cafeteria would have killed everyone instantly, which was over five hundred people. Then the plan was they would be out of their cars with their um, weapons, where they would mow down the survivors who would be fleeing the building. Just, I mean, horrifying to think about. But that was the plan. And then, as the school burned down, they would be killing the survivors. And then about 40 minutes into it, the third act was their cars were filled with explosives. So those would blow up while there were ambulance, where there was news media, while everyone was on TV filming this and the whole country was watching. Then they, they would kill you know, people being loaded into ambulances. And that's a standard uh, IRA tactic that they used against the British for years. You know, so it
0: was supposed to be much, much more horrible. I do want to talk about bullying because mm-hmm. out of Columbine so much national discourse happened about bullying. Was there evidence that Eric and Dylan were bullied, that this was about retribution for that?
2: No, there really wasn't. And that's one of the interesting things. I was just talking to a PTSD expert today. One of the best things that to come out of Columbine was this movement to control bullying, anti-bullying programs. And I think that's great. And that's this really positive thing that came out of it and should hopefully go on regardless. But it didn't really have anything to do with it in this case. If anything, Eric in particular saw himself as the bully-er, not the bullied. I think if you told Eric at some point, if you, you know, referred to him being bullied, he would have wanted to kill you. Uh, he saw other people as his victims. I mean, you, you're completely misunderstanding Eric's perception of the world if you see him as sort of being picked on and victimized. Um, the word never comes up in their journals. They left nearly a thousand pages of written material. Eric complained about everyone imaginable, but people who drive slow in the fast lane, people who like country music. The idea that he would write all that and never once complain about the bullying, which was, you know, really breaking his heart, that's just kind of preposterous.
0: Where where did the country get that idea then?
2: Well, it's really interesting. I went through the, the CNN transcripts of the first four hours because, of course, I was out in Clement Park, so I wasn't watching it on TV. But I went through, and they were using the local feed from four local stations. And you can see in the transcripts how we all sort of jumped to the conclusion. We already had this profile in our minds of a school shooter. And we picked up that profile, which it turns out, the Secret Service did a report with the Department of Education. There is no profile of shooter school shooters. That profile is imaginary to begin with. But- We collectively as a country thought there was a profile of the school shooter. And when this started, we just assumed that was that profile. And reporters would start asking kids, oh, were they loners? Were they outcasts? And, you know, the power suggestion is huge. And most kids in a school of 2000 don't know. The other kids, especially underclassmen, didn't know them. But they were hearing, oh, yeah, yeah. And they would say, oh, yeah, they were. And then reporters, be- we believed this and started you know, that it was being said more on TV. So reporters would say things like, we hear they were loners. Is that true? Have you heard anything like that? Oh, yeah, yeah, they were loners. I
0: mean, it being the ultimate echo chamber.
2: Yeah, exactly. It went back and forth. and And we as reporters thought we were getting the truth. But- we were saying it to the students. they were saying it back to us, and each one thought they were getting it from the other party, and it was just it went round and round in an echo chamber.
0: Let's talk more about the killers specifically. Um, based on your research, when do you believe that these boys decided to commit murder on a massive scale? Let's start with Eric Harris.
2: We know for sure at least one year out. They wrote in each other's yearbooks a year before that they were planning to do it, not just murder, but in the cafeteria in April of 1999. Now, going backwards, we can't be certain exactly when they got to that point. So that's the latest possible point a year before that. But for two years before Columbine, Eric was talking about the idea of mass murder and he had these more grandiose plans of killing everyone in the planet, and he sort of scaled back. So we can't know for sure during that two years to one year out where he went from, I'd love to kill everyone in the planet, to like, hmm, maybe I could I, I could do a high school. I can realistically do that. So that, that's between his thought one progression. and two years. It, it really is his thought progression. And it's one of the most fascinating passages in the journal to me is I ch- a title of the chapter, Bombs Are Hard, because he actually complains. He starts talking about um, – Denver and how he would very graphically, I want to see the whole city um, in flames or all of downtown, all the buildings on fire going down, very much sort of like um, the Joker in the Batman movie of doing something like that. He's describing that and then he starts complaining and he says, you know how hard it is to create just one bomb to just blow up one building? It, you know, Bombs are hard. And he realizes even though he wants to do something like that, even though killing all of Denver is really a scaled back idea from the planet, he can't blow up all of Denver. It's not going to happen. Um, and he actually has budgets where he's using his you know wages at the pizza factory um, to, to finance this thing. He doesn't have enough money to do what Tim McVeigh did to you know, buy all these truckloads of fertilizer um, to blow up the building.
0: He figures out he can do one. And then for Dylan Klebold, I mean, the, the sense you get from reading the book is <clears> that um Eric is really the, the driving force, mm-hmm. and Dylan seems caught up in this mm-hmm. and then eventually willing to go along. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a fair assessment?
2: Yeah, that, that's a really good read.
0: And Dylan, to me,
2: Dylan was the revelation and the huge surprise because Eric wanted to commit murder all along. Dylan's is so much more tragic and, and, and interesting. He went from two years out— he was talking about killing himself in his journal. That's right. Suicide is a much bigger thing. Suicide. Yeah. And their journals are like night and day. Eric's journal, hate is the most common word. It's hate, hate, hate constantly. Dylan's is literally love, love, love. Love is the most common word in there, probably, you know, other than the word the. It's, it's on almost every page. He's drawing hearts. These giant hearts. Some entire pages are filled up with one giant heart and then little hearts. He's trying to be this really loving kid, but he feels the world doesn't love him back. He goes from this morose, depressive state where he's very angry at himself and beating himself up to gradually um, Eric – Helps him understand that, like, well, dude, you know, why are you taking this out on yourself? You know, it's not you that you should be yelling. It's the rest of the world who did this to you. They're the ones who should pay. And Dylan gradually starts to say, yeah, I can, you know, I can make them pay. And for Dylan, it was always still primarily a suicide. It was one of those vengeful suicides where I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to show all these people on the way out.
0: We're listening back to a conversation with author Dave Cullen about his book simply titled Columbine. Nineteen years ago this week, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold killed 12 students and a teacher before turning the guns on themselves. Since then, the country has seen dozens of school shootings, most recently in Parkland, Florida. We spoke to Cullen in 2009 when his book first came out. I asked him the perennial question whether there was a point law enforcement could have intervened and stopped that attack at Columbine High School.
2: That, that's really one of the tough questions, and I think there is one point. There came a point in time when an investigator for Jeffco put it all together. There were written pages, there were printed pages where he had of Eric making death threats, and some of them were very specific. But more importantly, they found physical evidence. They found an unexploded pipe bomb in a park near Eric's house and wrote up a draft affidavit for a search warrant. It's more than a page, single space, lays out a brilliant case, and what? He was never taken to the judge. The best explanation I've seen is that he was called off onto another case, a hot case, a real case where murders had actually happened, which is understandable. He went off to that case, took a couple of weeks, came back. And for whatever reason, it was not followed, the Eric Harris case was not followed up on.
0: In fact, I believe that affidavit was suppressed for some time after the shootings. After, yes, exactly. I mean, that, that's a that becomes a bit of an incriminating document. It does. Well, you're right that the, the Harris and Klebold homes, and this really caught my attention, became crime scenes immediately mm-hmm. after the shootings. So first, these parents learn their sons are responsible, may be responsible in those early days. Uh, then they're forced to leave their homes so they can be combed for evidence. And I think it's very easy to blame parents for what mm-hmm. their kids do. But are there points where you can see how the parents contributed or not?
2: Not really. I don't. Um, There were certain warning signs. But, you know, let's start with Eric's parents. Eric's parents knew they had a, a problem kid and they were they were doing something about it. Aside from the diversion program where he was seeing a counselor every two weeks, they hired a psychiatrist. They put him on medication. They were very strict with him. He got a speeding ticket and he got he got grounded for it. I mean, I Every little thing, they grounded him. So they were very active parents and knew they had a problem. They saw the problem as Eric not having any plans for the future. But what parent thinks like, oh, our kid is getting into some trouble and, you know, he's angry. Like, maybe he's going to commit mass murder. And especially the Klebolds. If you got a kid who's, you know, a 17-year-old boy who's depressed and morose and moping around and, and won't talk. You know that's that sort of like. You think you know, that's rather
0: unexceptional. Yeah, probably. yes,
2: it's describing most of the th boys in America. Now there were a few moments when Eric's parents, for instance, found the pipe bomb he had been making. Still, in all, uh, lots of kids play with with uh, firecrackers, and their parents find them or M eighties. Who's going to think? Well, maybe he'll build a big bomb and do what Tim McVeigh
0: did and blow up a building. Now, the first FBI agent on scene was Dwayne Fusile. Uh, and not just for work, but because his son was a student at the school, but Fuselier became a key member of the investigative team. And eventually, he pieces together detailed psychological profiles of the shooters, mm-hmm. and he labels Eric a psychopath. Tell me about that.
2: Sure, and and pretty much everyone who was closely involved studying the case agrees on that—that that Eric was a psychopath. A psychopath um, is very different from the Hollywood conception. So the first thing we we need to do is sort of throw out Hannibal Lecter or any of those ideas, just scrap that. In fact, you'll do a lot better if you think of Hugh Grant as this charming, wonderful person who everyone likes, but has this mask where he's hiding what's really going on. They have no conscience whatsoever. When when you see a little kid, a little boy sometimes with an anthill who's stomping out and just stamping all the ants to death— That's how they think of people. It just mean we mean nothing to them. And so they will do anything for their own benefit. So most of them are nonviolent because they're after money. They become white-collar criminals, um, sometimes politicians and and so forth out for themselves. It's a rare psychopath who also has an extreme sadistic streak. That's when you have an Eric Harris or a lot of the serial killers tend to to be actual psychopaths, the rare uh, violent psychopaths.
0: The library at Columbine was the scene of the the most killings. Um, In the end, 10 people died there, 12 were injured. It's also where the killers turned their guns on themselves. And I want to know how you approached writing those scenes.
2: Yeah, well, that was uh, was one of the hardest parts of the book to write. The, The hardest part was Actually, the chapter on Dave Sanders bleeding to death.
0: This is a, a coach and teacher at the school. Yes, yes, yeah.
2: who died tragically, who died saving kids. But the uh, the scene in the library was pretty tough too, and pretty tough to figure out how to structure this book. But I decided to go back to the killings in several stages in in flashbacks because. Um, I didn't think the reader could take it all in one. It was just too much, too intense to throw it. This. So I broke it into different pieces. But I need to go through the killers, what they did to themselves, and I had to very vividly paint that scene in the library because I wanted to show, first of all, the sense of failure that I that I assumed they felt. Their plan did not work. They did not blow up the school. They went back down to the cafeteria and they tried to get those bombs to go off. Eric shot at it and Dylan threw a Molotov cocktail at it. They couldn't get those things to go off. And they knew their plan had essentially failed. And they went up to this just horrible scene in the library. And I think especially for Dylan, probably it was sort of a gruesome, disgusting scene. I I doubt that he felt good about it.
0: You mentioned um, Coach Dave Sanders, who, who bled to death in Columbine. Uh, there had been repeated calls uh, yes. for for help. Uh, there's the the somewhat famous, infamous, I think you can say, sign, uh, one bleeding to death with folks in the building trying to communicate to the outside mm-hmm. world. Um, in many ways, the police created a perimeter around the building and were not immediately penetrating it and getting mm-hmm. uh, to the killers. You write that Columbine changed the way police respond to school shootings. How?
2: It really did. Um... They were following standard practice, and there's a lot of controversy about that perimeter. And a lot of people say, understandably, they should have broken standard practice and and charged in there. But for better or worse, what they did that day, that is how officers were trained to respond to those situations. And that completely changed. It changed to something called the active shooter um, protocol, where instead of surrounding the building and containing, you charge in. And now the protocol, which has been adopted you know, pretty universally. um, In which we've seen its school shooting since. We have. And if possible, you wait for four officers so you can go in a a diamond-shaped entry. It's kind of technical. But if you can't, if they're not coming right away, you go in there with as few as one. You just charge in toward the sound of gunfire. And the rules are now you do anything to stop that killer. If you have to run past a dying kid who needs help, you do it because that's a terrible choice. But, you know, more people are going to die if you don't... um, Stop that guy. So um, that's probably the best thing that happened of Columbine
0: is we can neutralize these attacks much better. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Dave Cullen is the author of Columbine. Our conversation is from 2009. Cullen covered the attack, then spent a decade writing his account. This year, he has been covering the Parkland shootings for Vanity Fair, and he's now in Colorado to report on an event tomorrow organized by students called Vote for Our Lives. Survivors of the Florida shooting are expected to attend here. This week marks 19 years since the shootings at Columbine High School. And that's Colorado Matters for today. One last thing before we go. Our interviews with the gubernatorial candidates begin next week. Between now and the primary, we'll hear from the Republicans and Democrats who want to lead this state. I hope you'll tune in. You can follow the show on Twitter at Colorado Matters. And I'm at CPR Warner. We're also on Facebook CPR News. This is Colorado Matters. Thanks for spending time with us.